We'll now hear today's scripture reading, and then I will be back for today's teaching. Today, God speaks to us from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, verse 7, and Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt, take the, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless that takes his name in vain. After this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. So, I don't know about uh, you, but it's been a heavy week. Uh, and given the uh, nature of this week, I uh, decided to push pause on uh, the sermon series that we had been in in order to uh, take a moment to address what happened this week. Uh, and I want to just get right at it because we have had quite a week. Uh, the insurrection this week, occurring at the most central location of our democracy on Wednesday, uh, was something to behold. Uh, This attack left even the most ardent uh, congressional supporters of our president uh, denouncing him for the actions that he incited, Uh, while others in his own party are still right now calling uh, for the enactment of the 25th Amendment to remove him immediately. Uh, Numerous cabinet members over the course of this week uh, have immediately resigned uh, to distance themselves from this chaos. It's truly been an unprecedented week. Uh, The scene at the Capitol building was heartbreaking. I mean, seeing the violent mob bash out windows and knock down doors and scale walls, watching a lone black police officer, outnumbered by uh, dozens to one, trying to stem the tide of an almost entirely white mob, fearfully backpedaling, trying to find some support, I can't get into this fully today, but the videos that are coming out that shows how this white mob was treated, videos showing how police officers were opening barricades to the Capitol, inviting people in. There was one black police officer who's reporting that he was called the N-word at least a dozen times on that day. The whole thing is infuriating watching the doors of the house chambers being barricaded and secret service members with guns drawn, people trying to bash out those windows, seeing congressmen and women ducked down, hiding through the gunshots on the house floor, hearing congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester with arms stretched to heaven, boldly praying the Lord's protection over her fellow congress members seeing Confederate flags being waved inside the halls of the Capitol, seeing rioters wearing pro-Nazi shirts with one man wearing a Camp Auschwitz shirt, seeing a noose and a platform erected outside and people flashing white power symbols, later learning that there were pipe bombs found stashed at both the RNC and the DNC, knowing that five image bearers died, including one police officer who was bludgeoned to death by the mob with a fire extinguisher. Lord have mercy. January 6th, 
2001 will forever be a day that lives in infamy. But why are we talking about this today in church? You know, if the culminating events of Wednesday were solely a political issue, we'd probably just spend the morning solely praying for the state of our nation. But what we witnessed was not just a political issue. Throughout the scenes of violence that emerged on Wednesday, there were also multiple signs and flags bearing the name of Jesus. Those who were rioting shouted chants containing Jesus' name. A reporter from the Atlantic who was covering the march and the attack said this, that the conflation of Trump and Jesus was a common theme there. Give it up if you believe in Jesus, a man yelled. People cheered. Give it up if you believe in Donald Trump, louder cheers. And some might find this to be a fringe issue that is dismissible because they just assume that most Christians would not engage such things and so we can dismiss it as as a fringe group. However, it's harder for us to consider that January 6th was an overflow of something far bigger. It was an overflow of a deeply embedded nationalism that exists within the church. One that has woefully woven together an affinity of and a loyalty to God and country. And there have been warnings. A January 6th was coming. Some saw the signs, some did not. In the words of a a late-night commentator this week, this was the most shocking, most tragic, least surprising thing I've ever seen. Specifically, there were years of red flags and warnings over the fallout of supporting the instigators of Wednesday's attack. John Piper, a well-known and famously conservative Bible teacher, author, and pastor, weeks before the election, wrote an article that caused a lot of buzz because of his denouncement of the president and because of the strong support the president had amongst Christians. And in the article, Piper decries Christians' willingness to support a president despite his immoral character and solely because of desired policy outcomes. And he gave warnings of the fallout that comes when leaders are platformed despite their unrepentant sexual immorality and boastfulness and vulgarity and factiousness. And this is a summary of Piper's statement. This is a summary of his thoughts in the article. He said this. He he said, I find it bewildering that Christians can be so sure that greater damage will be done by bad judges, bad laws, and bad policies than is being done by the culture-infecting spread of gangrene, of sinful exaltation, self-exaltation, and boasting and strife-stirring. How do they know this? Seriously, where do they get the sure knowledge that judges, laws, and policies are less destructive than boastful factiousness in high places? Now, why do I bring this up? Why do I bring up John Piper in particular when so many other people have said similar kinds of things? 
And again, I can't get into all of this, but in particular, people of color who have been saying this kind of thing for years. People of color have been acutely aware of this coming tragedy, given all the racial dynamics to it. But why bring up John Piper? I bring him up for one reason, that no one could claim that John Piper is some tool of the left. He is as conservative as they come. And I bring him up because all that I have said so far and all that I am going to say for the rest of today is not for the purpose of political posturing. Rather, everything today is for the sake of naming and framing what many across the spectrum decry, which is specifically a persistent idolatry in the American church an idolatry that has time and time again been ignored. It's an idolatry that has fostered the environment for the events of Wednesday. It's an idolatry that has persisted for years. It is the idolatry of Christian nationalism. An idolatry that was on full display on Wednesday and must be named in the church. And so what I want to do today is simple. I want us to have categories and language for understanding how we got here. And maybe more importantly, how we can move forward in God-honoring ways. Now, if you know me, you know that I care uh, very deeply about Bible teaching, Bible exposition. We are Bible people. Usually on Sundays, I'll jump right into our passages, but today uh, it's important that we first understand uh, the context into which these passages speak and so I want to do that for a few moments together. And what I want to do, I want to consider three things. I want to consider what is nationalism, what is Christian nationalism, and then what, what is the kingdom of God? Right, so first, what is nationalism? Uh, in his book, Political Visions and Illusions, uh, David Koizis, who's uh, a PhD from Notre Dame, spent 30 years teaching political science. He surveys uh, various contemporary ideologies, uh, and I'm going to make reference to his work several times this morning, but he writes about everything from democracy to liberalism to conservatism to socialism and many others in this book, but he also spends some time unpacking the historic and current realities of nationalism. And I want to spend a few minutes considering his survey because it's really helpful in understanding the socio-political landscape that informs the socio-religious landscape of the day. And this is what he says about nationalism. Speaking about nationalists, he says, for the nationalist, the nation may claim the ultimate allegiance to its members who are dependent on it for their welfare and even, to some extent, their existence. In other words, nationalism elevates the role of the nation-state in the eyes of the members to such a degree that without the nation-state, they feel as though their welfare and identity are in jeopardy. Then he goes on to show how there's a religion-like power that it has, that nationalism has, in shaping the socio-political imagination of its people. And he shows this by presenting what he calls the nationalist redemptive story. And this is essentially how nationalism plays out in many places at many different times throughout history. First, you know, if this is a story, you can think of these almost as chapters uh, of a book. The first chapter of the nationalistic story is that there's a belief 
that the nation is rooted and established in, this, uh, in an idealized, even mythological past. The second chapter would be that there's this belief that this nation was established by God with a historic mission in mind. The third chapter, though, is that at some point, the nation departs from its calling given by God and as a result, falls under the oppressive rule of another people or ideology until, chapter 4, salvation comes when a national leader or group of leaders rises up to throw off the yokes of oppression. I mean, do you hear the religious undertones of nationalism? I mean, does that story at all sound familiar? So that nationalism, this kind of nationalism, we've seen played out, again, in many places across history. But if that's nationalism, what are we then to make of Christian nationalism, specifically the Christian nationalism of now? Let's consider that a little further. Uh, Andrew Whitehead, who is a sociologist at Purdue University, he wrote a book called Taking America Back for God. Uh, It's a book looking at Christian nationalism, and it really is worth reading. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're interested in reading more, to read David Coises' book and also this one as well. But in the book, um, Whitehead, he defines Christian nationalism as this. He says that it's an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. He goes on to say elsewhere that Christian nationalism is built on an interpretation of history that connects America's founding and future success with its Christian heritage. And within that framework of Christian nationalism, he argues that Christian, quote-unquote, really has nothing to do with religion, but rather Christian is more of an ethnocultural, political identity that denotes a specific constellation of religious affiliation, specifically evangelical Protestant, cultural values, specifically conservative values, race, specifically white race, and nationality, specifically American-born citizens. All of this is born out of the belief that the United States is specially blessed by God to be a particular kind of nation. And it's this assertion that's produced what many have called American exceptionalism. Now, Gordon Wood, who's a historian at Brown University, he defines American exceptionalism as this. The belief that we as Americans are a special people with a special destiny to lead the world toward liberty and democracy That is to say that it is the belief that the United States differs qualitatively from other developed nations because of its national credo, historical evolution, and distinct political and religious institutions, and that it is the bearer of freedom and liberty and morally superior. Several years ago, in my uh, doctorate program, uh, I wrote on Christian nationalism. It's, it's been one of my main uh, areas of research. And in my research, I found it quite remarkable the extent to which the United States was founded with the perceived mandate from God to be what Puritan John Winthrop called a city on a hill. Of course, referencing Jesus' words in Matthew 5 on what his church ought to be. 
I mean, even then, there was a fusing of the church and this new nation that was being created. And here's what's happened to us as a nation and as a people, given that this has been very much how we have viewed ourselves as a society. There's been two significant consequences to this ideology. The first really significant consequence is that it's created for us a bit of a skewed arc of history, meaning American exceptionalism and Christian nationalism will really cloud one's ability to think rightly about their history. We will inevitably exalt our successes and downplay our failures when we think of ourselves as exceptional. We will memorialize days like the 4th of July, but then we will debate for decades about whether or not we should celebrate Juneteenth. We will lionize Puritan theologians, but make no mention of the enslavement of image bearers that they perpetuated. I mean, this is what happens when one views themselves exceptional. You exalt your successes. You downplay your failures. But not only has this skewed the way that we view the past, it also very much skews the way that we view the future. In the 19th century, the 20th century, and even today, there are many evangelical Protestants who believed that God would usher in his kingdom through the United States. It is a pervasive idea even now. So much so that I think this could probably be the case for many of us. It seems unfathomable, unfathomable, that's a hard word to say. Uh, (laughs) It seems crazy to think that the United States, before Christ returns, collapses and becomes just an entry in a future history book, doesn't it? I mean, for surely God created the United States, established the United States to usher in his heavenly kingdom. And so for many, it skews our ability not only to look back on our history, but also to look ahead on what's to come. But there's another consequence, because it doesn't just affect our our arc of history and how we view history. It also impacts now as well. And the second consequence to American exceptionalism and Christian nationalism is that there's a perceived need to win back what was lost. Remember, one of the aspects of the nationalistic storyline, this was chapter three, so to speak, of that story, is that at some point, the nation departs from its God-given calling and falls under the oppressive rule of another people or ideology. And as we've said, there's this ethnocultural political identity that has existed within the church in the United States. It's embedded itself and to become Christian nationalism, and now it does seem as though there's something lost. Remember what I said, what uh, Andrew Whitehead had noted about Christian nationalism, that there's this evangelical Protestant mindset, a conservative cultural value system, that there's a white race majority, that there is an American-born citizenship. All of that is being lost. And Coises draws this out by noting that many conservative Protestants have a sense of having lost a country that once belonged to their evangelical forebearers. And that since Uh, The Second World War, and he draws this out quite a bit. Since the Second World War, they have sought to win back what they had lost, namely the American nation. And it's really been since then 
the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, where evangelicals became a political force. In the 90s, we saw a huge resurgence of it with the moral majority. And now, in recent days, that latent nationalism has been exploited and mechanized in unprecedented ways. Believing that one needs to win back what was lost means that one will be susceptible to the manipulation of leaders and ideas and theories that we think will help us win back what we lost. I mean, right now, there's growing commentary and research on why conservative Christians are so susceptible to conspiracy theories. And you may, have not, may or may not have heard some of these theories, extreme ideas that are current, but ideas like secret pedophile rings in the Democratic Party, or COVID being created as an attempt as a, as a communist takeover of the United States, or even widespread voter fraud to steal an election, that continues to persist even after 50-plus court rulings, including the Supreme Court, saying otherwise. I mean, those theories and ideas support the interest of winning battles that not everyone falls prey to such ideas, and many are trying to think rightly, but it's still so pervasive within the American church. Christian nationalism leaves many vulnerable to the manipulation and the exploitation of those who will use Christians to achieve power through the nationalism that's embedded within the church. But even more than all that, here's the bigger problem for the church, is that Christian nationalism creates a counterfeit kingdom that stands opposed to the kingdom of God by dishonoring the king. Let's consider what I mean. Uh, Christian nationalism, in all of its pervasive forms, it does two things. First, Christian nationalism dishonors the name of Jesus. And second, Christian nationalism misrepresents the character of his kingdom. And this is where our two passages come in, Exodus 20, Matthew 6. In Exodus 20, verse 7, we have the third of the Ten Commandments, that being, do not take the Lord's name in vain. The Lord takes very seriously when we take his name in vain. Uh, the question, of course, is what does it mean to take his name in vain? You know, for me growing up, and maybe for some of you as well, uh, it meant using the Lord's name as a curse word. Uh, and I think there's validity to that. We should not be flippant with the way that we use the name of the Lord. But hear me, my friends. Using the Lord's name as a curse word does not nearly get at what this command means. Rather, to use the Lord's name in vain is to use his name in ways that desecrates the glory of his name. And Wednesday had egregious examples of what it looks like to take the Lord's name in vain. When the name of Jesus is slapped on an American flag or placed next to an exalted politician, when the cross is brought to an insurrection rooted in nationalism, as though Jesus' name or his cross validates the actions, the Lord's name has been taken in vain because it desecrates the glory of his name. 
And Wednesday was an extreme version, extreme example of this. But make no mistake that Christian nationalism in all its forms, including American exceptionalism, takes the Lord's name in vain. We have been taking his name in vain since the founding of our nation. The second thing, though, that it does is it not only dishonors his name, it also misrepresents the character of his kingdom. In the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that we uh, pray every week, Jesus teaches us to pray by saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let me stop there just for a second. What is that? That's the third commandment, isn't it? Jesus teaching us to honor the name of God. But then, of course, he goes on to say, thy kingdom come. Now, that kingdom is the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim. But it is also the kingdom that he ushers in with his coming. It is the kingdom that we will experience fully one day, yes, but it's also a kingdom that has already come. God does not need the United States to usher in his kingdom. His kingdom has already come because Jesus, our king, has come. And so as a result, the church, the people of God, ought to look to the character of the king in order that we might properly represent his kingdom. Christian nationalism rejects everything that we know about our king. And who is that king? That king of glory that Christians are called to serve and reflect. Christians serve a king who lays down all majesty to become a servant so that those of us who ought to be servants might be treated majestically. Christians serve a king who was most compassionate to the powerless and saved his harshest rebuke for those who loved power so that those of us with no power when we stand before the one with all power, God himself, we might do so in confidence and not in fear. Christians serve a king that though he was innocent of disobeying the law of God, was treated like he was guilty so that those of us who are actually guilty might be treated like we're innocent. Christians serve a king that though he had a defense against his accusers, was silent like a lamb to the slaughter, so that those of us with no defense might be provided a defense that we do not deserve. Christians serve a king who did not take up the sword to accomplish victory, but a cross, so that those of us who deserved the sword might instead be given a victory. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we pray a prayer that reminds us that we are a people that reflect the character of that kingdom by reflecting the character of our king. And Christian nationalism desecrates the name of our king and rejects the character of his kingdom. There is nothing that the Christian needs to win back in the name of Jesus. Nothing. So where then does this leave us? Christina Edmondson, who's a woman uh, I hold in such high regard. This week, she tweeted something after the events of Wednesday. I want to read this to you. It was a challenge to me. She said, denouncing wrong, 
comes from a moral credibility and high ground. Repentance, though, requires we get low, search ourselves, own our own wrong, and turn towards restorative change. If sin is minimized, denied, endorsed, denunciation without repentance is an insult, a bad con. Now, I note this because it's easy to denounce what happened on Wednesday. It really costs us nothing to denounce what happened on Wednesday. And it's easy for me to denounce something like Christian nationalism and all of its effects. But if I cannot find the places where I need to repent, my denouncement is a bad con. And there are many things for which I must repent. Believe it or not, I am far from a perfect man. But there's one thing that I want to publicly repent of now. Before you, before our congregation, before God, my salvation. I confess that I have not had the prophetic boldness to speak more clearly, decisively, and authoritatively on these pervasive issues. And it's been out of a fear of others and their perception of me. I confess that I have not remembered that Christ has one people, one bride, that we are all, as his church, brothers and sisters. And as a result, I have not braced, embraced the reality that I am my brother's keeper. And the way that that has played out is I have not prayed like I should for those that I denounce. I have not asked the Spirit of God to provide for me a grace and a compassion for those that I denounce. And it's made my denouncement a bad con. At times, I've harbored resentment and disdain and not love in my heart for my brothers and sisters, some of whom were there on Wednesday. If you're a Christian, my question to you is where must you repent? Denunciation without repentance is an insult. It is a bad con. May the Spirit of God make plain to us the ways that we need to repent in all of this. And if you're not a Christian and you're listening, here in the room or online, I'm so glad you're here. And I want you to know that Christ is more than his people often represent if you look at us and you experience disappointment, I'm with you, which is why I ask you to do what I must do. Just look to Jesus. His character and his kingdom are far more than what his people often present. And so forgive us for not showing you Jesus. He is good, he is loving, he is compassionate, he is faithful. And I pray that we all look on him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the ways that we have not faithfully represented you in this world. Forgive us for the ways that we have idolatrously put other things before the glory of your name and the character of your kingdom.
God, forgive us for the ways that we have not loved each other in the ways that we should. God, would you make plain to us that which we must give up, that which we must repent of. God, would you give us the courage to do so. And God, may you help us all look upon Jesus. May we remember the character of our King and the character of his kingdom. And God, may that shape us so profoundly that we become a people who honor you in ways that not only unify your church, but also make clear to the world that you are all that you say that you are. We need your spirit to do this work in us, God. We are not able to do it on our own. So we humbly come before you as your servants. Use us, mold us, shape us. All for the glory of your name. We ask this in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.